Robert Robertson grew up in abject poverty in Texas, struggling with drug addiction and undiagnosed autism. While in and out of prison on nonviolent charges and parole violations, he had three children. After a heated custody battle with the maternal grandparents of his youngest, Nikki Bowman, Robert and his parents won shared custody, just as Nikki's long-standing respiratory issues were raging out of control. In late January 2002, while suffering from nausea, diarrhea, fever, and respiratory distress, Nikki was improperly diagnosed with an acute respiratory ailment. Along with codeine, two-year-old Nikki was prescribed a medication that now comes with a warning for potentially causing fatal respiratory depression in children. In the early hours of January 31st, 2002, Robert comforted Nikki after she had fallen out of bed. When he woke again, Nikki was unresponsive and turning blue, so he rushed her to the hospital where her symptoms included the triad of findings previously associated with the junk science of shaken baby syndrome. The potential causes for her symptoms included undiagnosed viral pneumonia, the prescription drugs, the shortfall, the attempts to revive Nikki, or some combination thereof. Disregarding these factors, a leap in logic was made by those who had previously misdiagnosed Nikki to accuse Robert of fatally abusing his daughter. Then, diaper rash was misconstrued as anal tearing, creating the specter of potential sexual abuse over the proceedings that sent Robert to death row. This is wrongful conviction. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at First, first Listen. Listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. I'm Jason Flom, and today's case, unfortunately, is going to sound like familiar territory. It's a shaken baby prosecution, and all of which was based on a hypothesis that is now rejected by not only the original scientists, but also the scientific and medical communities that once held it to be a decided matter. Now, unfortunately, some of those attacked with that ill-fated diagnosis in a court of law are still languishing in prison. Too many. I mean, countless people including our guest today, who is on death row in Texas, Robert Robertson. 
Now, my producer, Connor Hall, and I, we trekked down to the Polunsky unit in Livingston, Texas, to record an interview with Robert. You'll hear pieces of that interspersed throughout our coverage today. Joining us now is his appellate attorney since about 2016, a fierce and well-respected advocate in the innocence community, Gretchen Swen. Gretchen, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Thank you so much, Jason. Now, before we get into Robert's case, I want to give a little background about the junk science of shaken baby syndrome. We go further in depth about it on our show, Junk Science, and we'll have that episode linked in the bio. Please check it out. It's it's mind-blowing. And in that episode, the executive director of the Center for Integrity and Forensic Sciences, Kate Judson, spoke with our host, Josh Dubin, about the shaken baby hypothesis and its effects, of which there are many. We've covered the cases of Amanda Brumfield, Stephanie Spurgeon, Melissa Lucio, who's also on death row in Texas and just recently won a stay of execution. We hope for a positive outcome there as well. And of course, Kate Judson joined us again to explain how this junk science scourge pertained to the case of John Jones, who still languishes in an Ohio prison. Here's what Kate said in that episode about this hypothesis turned childcare nightmare. Shaken baby syndrome was originally proposed as a hypothesis to explain a phenomenon that a pediatric neurosurgeon in Great Britain was seeing in his patients. He would sometimes have infants who died or were seriously ill without a clear cause and without external trauma, and yet the internal features looked a lot like kids who had suffered some kind of traumatic injury. So those findings were subdural hematoma, which is bleeding between the coverings of the brain, retinal hemorrhage, which is bleeding at the back of the eye, and encephalopathy and cerebral edema, which sort of acts together as one leg of what sometimes people call the triad. Cerebral edema is brain swelling and encephalopathy is brain dysfunction. And so Dr. Guthkelch, this pediatric neurosurgeon, was seeing these findings in kids and they looked injured on the inside but not on the outside. And he thought that one reason for that might be a common disciplinary technique in his home of Northern England in the 70s, which was shaking. And so what Dr. Guthkelch said is that these medical findings could be due to shaking, and Dr. Guthkelch wasn't claiming to have the answers, but that rather that he was hypothesizing about what might be causing these findings. So that started to evolve. A, a radiologist in, in New York, John Caffey, built on that, and he published articles saying the same thing, right, that parents should be gentle with infants. But neither of these doctors suggested that the medical findings that they associated with shaking were exclusively diagnostic to shaking, nor did they say that there there was a reliable way to place blame on a caregiver when a child had these medical findings. And there's a little bit of a gap in understanding between the mid to late 1970s and then when we start to see these cases appear in published appellate decisions in the late 80s. And we started to see prosecutors and pediatricians in particular, also pathologists, saying that when children had this collection of findings, that shaking could be diagnosed. And that's when it comes into the criminal legal system and we start to see the trajectory that we're on today, where parents are wrongfully accused based on only the existence of a particular set of medical findings. So since this hypothesis was picked up here in the States in the 80s, we've seen decades of parents and caregivers prosecuted with the support of medical personnel in the courtroom, making a bizarre leap in logic from this triad of findings, which we now know have a universe of potential causes, uh, to diagnosing that not only abuse was the root cause, but also that they could reliably place blame on the most recent caregiver. 
Now, this recipe for prosecution has fallen apart, starting in the late 2000s when more research began to be done on this topic. We now know that there are many, many causes of this constellation of findings. There is the possibility of abusive head trauma, but in order to cause that kind of internal damage with no external injuries or even minimal external injuries, that major spinal injuries would have to be present. And if some sort of trauma was the cause, accidental or intentional, it can take up to 72 hours for complications to arise, making it impossible to pin it on the most recent caregiver in the absence, again, of severe spinal and exterior injuries. Finally, researchers have now compiled a list of 88 conditions and counting that can cause this constellation of findings. Absent any abuse, injury, or trauma, which certainly seems to be the case here with Nikki Bowman. And I want to quote Dr. Guthkelch here from a 2012 article titled, After 40 Years of Consideration, where he said, and I quote, I think we need to go back to the drawing board and make a more thorough assessment of these fatal cases. And I'm going to bet that we are going to find in every or at least the large majority of cases that the child had another severe illness of some sort, which was missed until too late, end quote. Unfortunately, it appears that's exactly what we have here in the case of Nikki Bowman, the daughter of our guest today, Robert Robertson. But before we get to Nikki's tragic end, Gretchen, can you give our audience a little background on Robert? This is somebody who grew up dirt poor in East Texas. There was a lot of violence in the home, but, you know, had a mother who loved him dearly and the kid had no record of ever engaging in physical violence. He was in special ed classes. He was the one who was bullied. He was the one coming to school with bruises. You know, he was on the radar in terms of this is a struggling kid, but, you know, he drops out in ninth grade and stumbles into what happens with so many poor, traumatized kids. He struggles with drug addiction. But this is a gentle soul. And, you know, you spend five minutes with Robert and you see his speech is unusual and he has this sort of flat affect and he struggles to speak. Okay. So, so, so you, uh, y'all got, got, got some questions or something to ask? Okay. Mm-hmm. Sure. Okay. So yeah, let me just introduce, first of all, this is wrongful conviction from death row in Texas. We're here on the Polunsky unit where we've been before to visit Rob Will and Rodney Reed. Today we're here with another innocent man, a man named Robert Robertson. The man himself is like a big teddy bear. <laughs> He's sitting right across from me through this window of bulletproof glass. Robert, thank you for uh, for being here and to yes, talk sir. to us today. Thank you for being here. And Robert, going back to the beginning, you, did you grow up in Texas? I was born in Minneota, Texas and stuff. We lived in Winsboro until I was six years old, you know. And then what, my dad worked for the railroad and his job transferred to Palestine, Anderson County, you know. You had a very difficult childhood, is that fair to say? Oh, uh, my, my dad was real rough and my mom was there. My mom was like, 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 like the glue to the family and stuff, you know, like the protector and stuff, but dad was like the provider. So if I could just say, because I've read a lot about you, your story and your case, of course, you endured a lot of abuse as a child, ran away when you were 12 for the yes, first sir. time. You sustained a fall from a ladder, ended yes, up with, with some severe uh, head trauma from that, and yes, of sir. course, football injuries. Yes, so you've been banged around a lot, I would say, right? Yeah, in car wrecks and stuff, you know, when I got older and stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And then you ended up going into the military, is that I correct? I went into the military when I was 17, Army, 
and they gave me a medical discharge later, later, later on, because they said I couldn't adapt to something. You know, you know what they said. You know, like a training discharge. You know. At age 20, Robert had moved to Alabama with a woman who was also dependent on drugs. They had two kids, both of whom had special needs. So, you know, out of desperation, he started committing petty crimes. The criminal activity he'd gauged in before had to do with burglary of a habitation related to his drug addiction. And when he spent time in prison, he was such a model prisoner, he was made a trustee. Then he paroled out. But as we know, even the most well-behaved person will have difficulty maintaining their freedom while on parole. There are thousands of reasons they can use to throw you back in there. And that's what he was dealing with. The parole violation was being out of county. That means he traveled to Fort Worth looking for work, which is where he hooked up with Nikki's biological mother, They were both from this little town, Palestine, Texas, had this brief little affair. She ends up pregnant. He's back in prison. And meanwhile, this this custody battle explodes between the grandparents that assume custody of this child from the hospital bed because CPS won't let the mom keep her. And then Robert's mom, who's like, well, if this is Robert's child, you know, we want to be involved. That goes on for nearly a year of Nikki's life with Robert out of the picture. But what Robert also doesn't know about is this kid is chronically sick. This is a child on Medicaid. You know, she's being brought in. They're like, ah, this antibiotic doesn't seem to work. Let's give her another one, you know, over and over again. And so there is a real tragedy in this child's short life of just the medical failures to get at what's going on with her. But I think that's sort of where the story begins. And then, you know, if you get to the point of trial, they acted like this history did not exist or certainly didn't matter. That you have a kid infected from eight days old, pretty much onward. Infected and neglected by a system that didn't care about her and doesn't care about a lot of kids like her. I mean, let's call it what it is. I imagine had they had access to different kind of health care that's afforded to people of means, she may well be alive today and who knows, maybe even would have graduated college. But we'll never know that because that's not how it worked out. And so back in January of 2002, Robert had a girlfriend who was having her own medical issues and was about to have a hysterectomy. And he and his parents were sharing custody of baby Nikki with the maternal grandparents. Now, Robert's life was hectic, and he's helping support Nikki with two paper routes that he was doing. And then there's the events of January 31st that resulted in Nikki's untimely and tragic death and Robert's unjust arrest. Can you explain the situation and what led to this horrible outcome? As I noted, you know, Nikki had been sick from essentially birth. But the week before her collapse, she had been brought to the ER with initially 103.5 fever, I believe. She was throwing up. She had chronic diarrhea and trouble breathing. At this point, she is prescribed this medication, Finnergan, which contains promethazine, which now has a black box warning from the FDA that you don't give this to kids under the age of 10 and certainly don't give it to kids with respiratory issues because it might cause death. A few days later, they also give her another prescription for Finnergan along with codeine cough syrup. You know, they're treating it as if it's some, you know, annoying cold, but you're having trouble breathing, then you give someone codeine, which 
metastasizes into morphine, you know, you're suppressing the respiratory system of a kid already in distress. So she, at the doctor, the day after the emergency visit, had a, a fever over 104. This is the follow-up from the ER. They send her home with these prescriptions, and it's a day later, essentially, after she's been through all this distress, she's been given all these medications, when Robert is called by the grandparents who have been feuding with his mom for a year to come get this child who is sick and take her home back to his place. To me, this is another part of the mystery. If you have a sick two-year-old, I wonder what parent wants somebody to come out to the country, pick up the child at nine o'clock at night, and knowing he's alone because his girlfriend's getting a hysterectomy in the hospital, but oh no, Robert needs to come out and fetch this child, take her home. It's in the night where he wakes up to this strange cry and his report consistently was he found her on the floor at the foot of the bed. He had heard this cry, woke up, and didn't know what happened, but he saw a little bit of blood on her mouth. He got a washcloth, wiped it off, kept her sitting up for a while because she'd fallen out, so he thought maybe she hit her head, and he'd been told if somebody hits their head, you have to keep them awake. And then they fall back asleep. His alarm goes off a few hours later. He wakes up, finds Nikki blue, not breathing, faint heartbeat. He panics, shakes her a little to try to rouse her. And then meanwhile, his girlfriend's calling him from the hospital to come get her. (laughs) And he reports, well, Nikki's not breathing. So the girlfriend starts yelling at him, get her to the hospital. And so Robert's trying to like put clothes on this comatose child. The woman's calling back. He's trying to call the other grandmother. He gets in the car, drives the short distance to the hospital, but the child never really recovers from this. And we have no idea how long had she ceased breathing. Right. Anyone who's ever taken a CPR class knows that you've got to start ASAP because it really doesn't take very long for oxygen deprivation to lead to brain death. So just to recap, we've got a little toddler who had been experiencing several days of respiratory distress that was many years later discovered to have been viral pneumonia, which is one of the 88 medical issues that can cause the triad of findings associated with shaken baby syndrome and abusive head trauma. Further, she was given medications that actually depress respiration, one of which now comes with a warning that it can cause, and this is a quote, fatal respiratory depression in pediatric patients, end quote. Then she had a short fall from her bed to the floor, which is another potential cause of that triad of findings. So what happened next at the hospital? He gets up there into the ER. They see this, you know, guy standing there with a limp child. And immediately the judgment starts. They they immediately assume he did something to this child and they whisk her away, code blue. They revive her. But by that point, her eyes were already fixed and dilated, which means she'd probably already experienced brain death. She, you know, it doesn't take long. It's about 12 minutes without oxygen. The brain shuts down. But they get her heart going. We know from the medical notes, there's extensive triage. They intubate her, take her off to be x-rayed. They realize the breathing tube's in wrong, pull it out, have to do it over again. So more not breathing, you know, way longer than it would take to sustain brain death. Once your brain dies, you're not coming back to life. But you revive the heart, 
you're pumping all this blood into the system that can no longer get into the brain. And it's about the same time they do a scan of her head. And what they notice, they had felt it behind her head that there was what was called a goose egg. You know, as someone falls, you remember it from the cartoons, you fall and you get a bump. You know, it's swollen tissue on the back of her head. But the CAT scan showed that there was subdural bleeding and that the brain had swollen and that then later on they realized there are also retinal hemorrhages. And this is the classic triad associated with shaking. So this bump on the head, you know, one doctor that sees her later that day says, oh, that was minor. That could have happened at another time. But all this internal stuff, oh, that must have been caused by violent shaking and then flinging the child down against something. This became the theory instantly. But it was based on all the trauma inside the head, which people see trauma, they see blood, they think blows, they think shaking. But in fact, what we now know is you can get that same triad of internal conditions simply because you've got oxygen deprivation. And then meanwhile, you have this intervention by the medical community to revive her that is increasing the blood inside her head. And they treated this as if this was the injury she had when she was brought to the hospital. Right. When in reality, the likely cause was either the viral pneumonia, the potentially fatal prescription drugs, perhaps the shortfall, or some combination of these things coupled with the attempts to revive her. But they either didn't know about or they just straight up ignored all of these factors and instead jumped to conclusions about Robert being violently abusive to his daughter because of the prevailing accepted sureties of the day. You have to realize when Nikki is brought to the ER, this is a small rural community, the same ER doctor is on duty who is the one who was giving her the Finnegan and sending her home with a high fever. Oh, boy. And the pediatrician that had had her come to the office and measured her fever at 104.5 came to the hospital, and he's weighing in. And these are the people interviewing Robert, which in my mind, these are interested witnesses. And they, along with this uh, collection of nurses, are making judgments about this man. And a lot of the testimony at his trial, which I know we'll get to, but right away there are these judgments. He wasn't crying at the right times. He wasn't showing enough concern. He was just standing there. You know, these are the comments. Now, Robert has, you know, a special way of presenting to the world. It is almost a Forrest Gump-like thing. He is not intellectually disabled. But he has finally, after decades, been diagnosed as being on the autism spectrum. And once you know that, it's like an epiphany. A lot of his behavior makes sense. And he does get into these sort of obsessive loops where he's focused on details he's noticed. And this was one of the things going on at the hospital. You know, he's like, I got her a sippy cup. I gave her a turkey. I put her, you know, in this place. And he's trying to go through everything he did that night. And they're like, none of that matters. And then he keeps saying, she fell off the bed. And they're saying, that doesn't matter. Fall doesn't explain this. And they keep telling him none of this works. So he keeps trying again. This is in the hospital while his daughter is in, you know, triage. They're all coming at him. The police are called almost instantly. And at some point in his telling of events, he said that he tried to give her a little shake to wake her up. And you can easily picture it, giving a slight rock to someone when they're asleep to wake them up. I think everyone's done that at some point. 
But that's all they needed to hear. The word shake coming out of the mouth of this large autistic man. When I brought her into the hospital, I was freaking out, freaking out and stuff, because they was trying to accuse me of uh, being responsible for what happened to her and stuff, you know. And then they didn't investigate her medical history like it should have been. And they said, oh, because he's acting a certain way, he, he must be guilty, you know. When you've been accused of something, don't have to be a parent. You're accused of something, you could be ner- nervous or something, you know. For that to happen to your child, a child and stuff like that there, I don't think nobody's going to be in, in the right mind, you know, stuff, you know, when, when your child is in that deal dying and stuff, you know. No, of course. And then you're being put into the situation on top of it all. And it ripped my family's life, ripped my life and stuff, just destroyed it and stuff, you know, because it took me away from my mom and dad, took me away from my other children. And, and, and I lost my little girl. Losing her is bad enough, but being accused of it, that's even worse, you know. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. 
basically everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So the police are brought in, and they start with the presumption, this guy is a guilty human being. But Robert volunteers to take him over to his house and show her where Nikki got injured and show the bed. The bed was really box springs and a mattress propped up on cinder blocks. This was his solution for his his fiance is coming home from the hospital. He's trying to elevate the bed. But you look at these pictures and this bed, it's precarious. You know, that's where Nikki was sleeping. So it's completely legit that a disoriented sick child full of all these drugs tries to get up in the night and falls off the bed. And that would very easily explain this bump on the back of her head. What it doesn't explain is all the internal stuff. The medical examiner, Dr. Jill Urban, saw a large volume of subdural blood, assumed that the blood was caused by trauma, assumed the trauma had to have been inflicted, and then claimed that the blood was caused by, quote, blunt force head injuries. The medical examiner to this day insists that she saw evidence of multiple impact sites to Nikki's head because of all the blood underneath. And what Nikki had was, this is critical, only one impact site on her exterior. It doesn't work that way. She reached the conclusion that the manner of death was homicide without waiting for any test results, including a toxicology report that ultimately disclosed a lethal amount of promethazine, also known as phenergan. So the same people who had missed all of the signs of her viral pneumonia and prescribed this deadly medication to the same toddler were now the same people looking sideways or cross-eyed, whatever you want to call it, at Robert, and they passed Nikki's case to Dallas Children's Hospital. Likely, they passed it along with their own biases. Later that day, when Nikki is taken to Dallas Children's, Dr. Squires, who was the child abuse expert, they look at the CAT scans and say, this is essentially classic shaken baby because of the triad. The child abuse expert says, I was told that this was a healthy child. She was, quote, totally well right before her collapse. So the only explanation is that she was violently shaken. Now, first, as you know, we were discussing earlier, it was it's a total lie to suggest this was a totally well child. This was a chronically ill child with infections that had resisted, I think, five different kinds of antibiotics. She has a viral infection. Nobody is getting it. She had a fall that could very well have started the subdural bleeding, but it wasn't a big fall because she didn't even have skull fractures, nothing like that. So another thing that we have to touch on here, Dr. Squires, who testified for the prosecution, gave an opinion at the trial that the one minor impact, she said that it may have, quote, happened at a different time. Now, let me unpack that for a second, right? So we know that, and the state didn't dispute that, the baby was not in Robert's care in the hours, probably days leading up to this horrible night when she became so deathly ill. So how could anyone hypothesize that it was him and not somebody else, but the many other people that were in contact with her that were in a position to care for or not, little Nikki? Dr. Squires and the medical examiner, Dr. Jill Urban, both told the jury that there could not be a lucid interval. 
that looking at her condition at the time of collapse, they declared that had to have been, you know, so much violent force imposed on this child that she would have immediately been rendered unconscious. And this is another fallacy associated with shaken baby syndrome that has been debunked. And it's tied to that one about the, the idea that a shortfall cannot cause serious injury. We now know that a short, unbraced fall where you hit your head, not common, but if it happens, especially in a young child, there could be hours and even days before symptoms arise. You can have a traumatic brain injury and yet the manifestations aren't visible. So that initial part of the hypothesis that instant loss of consciousness allowed you to pinpoint a perpetrator has fallen apart. And yet that was part of the testimony, you know, uncontested testimony that Robert's jury heard, that he had to be the guilty one because for her to be that unconscious, (laughs) he had to have done something to produce that right before she came to the hospital. Total fallacy. So the theory was that Robert must have held this 30-pound child out in front of him and shook her vigorously, causing all of these internal issues. But other than this bump on the head, there were no external injuries that could have explained her internal issues. And in addition, something that has been proven time and again to be impossible to do is to cause these internal issues by violently shaking while not also causing any neck injuries. It's nonsensical. It's absurd. And Nikki had absolutely nothing wrong with her neck. And we tried this in court. We had a biomechanical engineer. You know, that's the community that started to point out to the medical community that this hypothesis was unfounded. It's like, we're studying injuries to children. We're the ones that are coming up with things like car seats for children and helmets. And, you know, shaking does not cause this kind of injury in in any experiment that's ever been documented. So there are two fallacies at the very heart of the SBS phenomenon. One is that shaking could cause bridging veins in your dura to rupture. No. And that shaking would not cause neck injuries. Also, no. But it was already orthodoxy. By this point, like I said, it had been it was being taught in medical schools, and that's why I think it just has such staying power as a legal phenomenon when it has no scientific support because so many people's lives have been ruined, and so they keep tweaking how you're supposed to go about making the diagnosis. But in the day when Robert was quickly written off as guilty, there was no internal doubt within the medical community, so he's arrested. That day on that information. I'm sure if you're like me, you're probably saying, well, this really can't get any worse. But (laughs) you ain't heard nothing yet, okay? Because now, as they were all convincing themselves and each other that Robert's guilt was a certainty or whatever and, and ignoring the medical evidence, the local nurse, for reasons we'll never know, volunteered to do a sexual assault examination on this comatose child. And by the way, let me not leave out the fact that this nurse was not certified to do these type of examinations. She reported to law enforcement and other hospital staff that she saw, quote, anal tears on Nikki. And this led to a whole nother layer of insanity. Now, again, I'm no doctor. I'm no nurse either, but you don't have to be 
to, to understand. The poor child had had vicious diarrhea for days. Well, Jason, I do think this is the tail wagging the dog here. You have a week's worth of diarrhea. You're going to have in a two-year-old child, you know, some redness on their bottom. But so nothing about this would follow the protocol you would be taught if you went through the full certification, you know, about how you document things. You're never supposed to, by the way, declare you see evidence of sexual abuse. You're just supposed to report what do you see. But she starts telling people, including the lead investigator in the hospital, what she sees. I think then you have mind blindness set in. All of the officers then are looking at Robert through the lens of here is a man who potentially anally raped his two-year-old daughter. What a monster. All right. It is crazy, but then that takes over. Now, they share this finding, quote unquote, with the medical team at Dallas Children's. Well, the child abuse expert who apparently, you know, is looking all the time for sexual abuse says she does not see what this nurse saw. All she saw is what she said at trial was what every mother has probably seen, which, you know, looks akin to diaper rash. They also went to the medical examiner before the autopsy was done and said, yes, we have a nurse that saw evidence of anal tears. Again, the medical examiner couldn't endorse this, but they don't drop it. They do a sexual assault test on swabs taken from this child. Nothing. They test everything they can find in the bedroom. Nothing. Nothing to confirm this sexual assault hypothesis. And yet they dare. They dare to indict him on this. And every single potential juror is asked about the sexual abuse component that's going to be a part of this trial, along with shaken baby. Every single juror is told that's the theory the state has, that there was sexual assault, and that's the motivation for him to violently shake her to cover this up. That, that is the state story. It is all not just false. It is defamatory beyond belief. Your trial was a, a, was a farce. I mean, they pulled dirty tricks, accusing you of sexually abusing the child yes, when sir. they knew that that was not the case. And, and they knew that she had had this horrible diarrhea that would have provided yes, an exact explanation for why these symptoms were present. They decided to, to sort of taint the jury by bringing that ridiculous theory, which was later dropped. And they did take the jury because you hear a story about a child and stuff, it makes a lot of people mad, right? Of course. And it made the jury mad. It tainted that jury. They painted you into a monster, and I'm sitting here, you know, uh, uh, staring you right in the eyes. Yes, I mean, sir. this man is no monster, I can tell you right off the bat. And I'm kind but, of friend-friendly, really, you know. <laughs> I tell, people said, You're, I said, no, I'm not no father no more. I'm a lover, you know, friendly, you know. And again, I won't say that this was a conscious plot, but I do think they had expected Robert would take a plea deal. He adamantly would not. And I would say in almost any death penalty case, what the state recognizes implicitly is that they must turn the defendant into a monster because normal human beings don't want to come in and sign off on killing a fellow member of the human species. So if you're going to get that result, if you're going to justify all the resources and time you spent, well, this better be a monster they're looking at. They sounded this horrifically prejudicial theme from the moment she was brought to the hospital 
through Robert's trial and then dropped it right when it went to the jury because they really had no evidence except for this one nurse who, by the way, was the state's star witness at trial. She was on the stand pretty much longer than anyone else. So he was not convicted of that, but they maintained that, well, there was no evidence he didn't do it. I am not kidding you. There was closing argument about how even if they weren't going to decide the issue, they should consider it. And the judge allows that. Judge allowed it. The judge was concerned, but when he was told there was a nurse who would testify about this, he let the state put it on. And, you know, again, Robert had no defense attorneys who were bringing in experts of their own. There was cross-examination of this nurse, and that's how it came out that, you know, for instance, she didn't have the certification. But that's not the same as bringing in an expert to expose everything that this woman did that was contrary to the sexual assert nurse examiner protocol. If you read this trial transcript, you you could not believe this is happening in America in the 20th century, that this was a trial that was seen as at all legally appropriate. The, the evidence that was paraded in front of this jury and the abdication by defense counsel, because they too believe shaken baby syndrome was the only way to explain this child's death. So I think they just, you know, thought, well, he's not a bad guy. He didn't really mean to kill her. But yes, this must have been the way this child died. Right. So he was represented, if we can call it that, by Steve Evans and John Van Meter. Talk to us about their efforts or lack thereof. These were two uh, local attorneys appointed to represent Robert. You know, this is true of, you know, the vast majority of criminal defendants in this country who are too poor to retain a counsel. They stated on the record in opening statements that this was Unfortunately, a shaken baby case, no doubt about it. You know, and they saw their job as just to try to prevent entry of a death sentence. And that was their position. They did resist the sexual assault allegations, but again, only through cross-examination. Meanwhile, the state's bringing in experts who are telling the jury this kid was violently shaken. And so if you're told that, and then you also have a nurse saying, and by the way, I also think there was sexual abuse, someone that would violently shake a child, well, they might have also abused a child. These things become possible. There was no counter narrative. And again, in Palestine, Texas, in 2000. One, 2002, 2003, I don't see that these defense lawyers would have had the resources or wherewithal to go and recruit world-class experts to come in and challenge the state's causation theory, because at that time, there were very few of those experts even available in this country. Some of the people that came to our aid only recently, some very famous, renowned experts were just starting to sound the alarm. So they weren't really serving or acting as defense lawyers as much as sort of adjunct prosecutors, if you could say that. And they they didn't believe in him. They didn't believe in his innocence. They probably didn't understand a lot of it. Well, my attorney at trial had two of them. They had t- tried to do a plea bargain stuff, and I told them I didn't do nothing. My mama said I didn't do nothing. Don't take nothing, right? So my own trial attorney went kind of like went against me, you know. He kept saying they didn't know what what was, trying to make it a, sh- a shaking baby case. 
And thing is, my family lawyer, my mom's family lawyer, had gave her a pamphlet to go to Trinity Valley Community College in Athens for a seminar on those type of cases. Who did she see there? The head DA. He didn't know what was going on either. Doug Lowe, he went to that seminar too because he didn't know nothing about it. First time he ever heard something about it was when they uh, tried to make that type of case. Then my mom sent him over there at that seminar, taking taking that class with her, you know, to learn to learn about it, right? Wow. So th- th- I mean, I, 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 I don't even know what to say. That's I, crazy. I didn't either, and, and, and it, it, I was just like speech, I was speechless and stuff, you know. I knew I could could, could win, win that way and stuff, and he kept saying, "Oh, we're gonna win this way. We're gonna win this way. We're gonna win this way." So you have a prosecution team and a defense team who are totally out of their depth, taking seminars on shaken baby syndrome. And a seminar at that time would have been administered by somebody who fully believed in this proven junk science. His defense team saw it as their job to just keep him from getting the death penalty. So they basically just agreed with the prosecution that Robert had killed his daughter, but that he just didn't intend to. I mean, talk about being sold down the river, but I mean, but then again, they believed in SBS or shaken baby syndrome, just as everybody else did at the time. The child abuse expert, Dr. Squires, and the medical examiner, Dr. Jill Urban, both testified for the prosecution. And as Gretchen pointed out, even if they wanted to present a competing expert, who are they going to get? Right. Who are you going to get? And I think they they certainly could have and should have consulted with other experts. But I do think, you know, what's critical to Robert's hope at this point is that we recognize the science has changed. Never in a contemporary attempt to prosecute a parent for abuse would you jump to conclusions the way the medical community did in his case. There is an obligation to do what's called a differential diagnosis, where you try to eliminate all the other possibilities before you jump to the abuse prospect. Um, Here, it was completely turned on its head um, because shaken baby was seen as, you know, uh, to use an annoying legal term, raise ipsa loquitur, which means the thing speaks for itself. You see that triad, it had to have been abuse. And this was 2002. Everybody believed Shaken Baby was an article of faith. It had been accepted by the American Pediatric Association. But I can't name you any other causal theory where it's because you have no evidence, you can jump to the conclusion and say, I'm correct. But that is what happened you know, in modern American medicine. And, and it is terrifying, I think, to anybody uh, who's been around a kid to think that you could be blamed for a murder that was caused by an accidental or a natural phenomenon that just nobody's figuring out. Robert was convicted on Valentine's Day, actually, mm-hmm. ironically, of 2003 and sentenced to death. So the, the jury comes back in. At the time, did you have still have some hope that they would see the truth and that they would end this nightmare? I was ho- ho- hoping, hoping they would, because so, the attorney kept telling me, even though the way the attorney was going, we can win this case. We can win this case. This case is a winnable case. He's he's blowing air air, air up my behind. You know, he's he he was he just talking. You know, my right. head attorney was talking about this is winnable case, and I had my hopes up when they came back talking about guilty and stuff. You know, I don't know what what I really thought at the time, and my mind wasn't there and stuff. But before the punishment. 
my mom, my mom had to leave. My mom had to go check on my dad. He was in the old folks' home, you know. And when she got back, they done convicted, gave me the death sentence and stuff, you know. I, I was like shocked, shocked because you know I was shocked. You know, I guess you could say shock. You know, couldn't believe, could, couldn't believe they they convicted me of something that I didn't do. You know. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I've locked up uh, uh, January 31st, 2002. So a little bit over 20 years I've been locked up. I don't wish this on my, on my worst enemy and stuff, you know, because going through this and stuff, uh, but being in a place like this, even though he got it else, but it, uh, it's like 
like a bad, bad, bad dream, you know, like, like like a nightmare and stuff, you know. Especially when when you hadn't done when you hadn't done nothing to, to be here in the first place, you know. And then you know I lost I lost my mom last September and stuff, and I lost my dad since I've been in here and stuff. And uh, at first, at first I, I you know I was accused of Nikki being responsible for that her dad, you know, and stuff. And uh, I lost the chance to send my, my son and my daughter grow, grow up grow up and uh, uh, being away from fa family all this time, lost all those years and stuff. And uh, it was stole from me, you know. So it destroyed my life, you know. It's absolutely heartbreaking. And the authorities appear to have been doing what they, I guess, thought was the right thing at the time. But our understanding of these instances has now advanced considerably. It's almost like a 180. And what we do know now is that in the absence of any external injuries that could explain these internal issues, an SBS prosecution is an unconscionable leap in logic. We've already laid that out, but Gretchen, before our more enlightened understanding of SBS, Robert faced denials in his direct appeal and state habeas. When and how did this case come to you and what has happened since? So Robert, as we noted, was sentenced in 2003. He was on the verge of execution in 2016. That's when I was at a state public defender's office and we agreed to take on the case and based on the change in science around the controversy of Shaken Baby, we got a, a stay of his execution and the right to get back into state court to try to prove our claims. That then took many years. Right. During this time, you were trying to uncover the CAT scans from January 31st, 2002, and both medical centers had maintained that they had been lost or destroyed, as did the state. And then during the opening statements of this evidentiary hearing, something really crazy happened. In the middle of my opening statement, this clerk with goodwill listened and thought, well, I wonder if this stuff she's referring to could be in this secret murder closet that I was just told about when I started the job. It, it you know, had nothing to do with the motions I'd filed seeking Brady evidence. That hadn't led to someone discovering this. It was this one woman just thinking, could this be a possibility? Why the, the scans were buried in the courthouse basement, I do not know. But then we had a long hiatus, so we could have a chance to have an expert look at that. We had these looked at by a radiologist, the only radiologist, by the way, who still seems to have ever looked at them. And it confirms that there was only one impact site on Nikki's head. And that was that small, swollen tissue on the back right of Nikki's head. That is exculpatory. That confirms that if she had a fall and hit her head, well, there's some evidence, but it's not evidence that explains her injuries. All right. And it also, it could have been that she fell earlier and that the fall from the bed when she was with Robert didn't cause that. We don't know. No one witnessed the fall, but it does not. It does not show that she had any other impact sites on her head. And yet the medical examiner to this day, who did not look at the head scans at the time and did not look at them now, decades later, insists that she saw evidence of multiple impact sites to Nikki's head because of all the blood underneath. Nonsensical. It doesn't work that way. You cannot impact a child's head sufficiently enough to cause internal damage and leave no mark 
on the outside. And what Nikki had was minimal bruising on her exterior. The blood underneath cannot be read like tea leaves. And yet that is what this medical examiner has done. Whereas the the scans, which are the reliable evidence about whether or not there were impact sites, shows that one site, one and only site. Which corroborates Robert's version of events. And then in addition to the lethal level of promethazine in Nikki's body, which we know can cause fatal respiratory depression in children along with codeine, a narcotic that also depresses respiration, she had viral pneumonia. So some combination of these factors, maybe all of them, stopped Nikki from breathing and then the efforts made to save her, only pumped more blood into her cranium with nowhere for it to go. Then the experts in 2002 saw all that blood and said shaking and blunt force head trauma were to blame. So you now had compelling evidence to refute every single thing that the state had put on at trial. What happened next? We finally had an evidentiary hearing. We were allowed eight days to put on our case. Here we are, 20 years later, having amassed an overwhelming amount of evidence from experts who are who have no dog in this fight. They're just looking for the truth, who have identified the toxic level of prescription drugs in this child system, the interstitial viral pneumonia, the lack of evidence of impact sites, and all the change in the understanding of shaken baby syndrome. All of that was put before trial court and deemed not new evidence. Which is absolutely bonkers. I mean, in this proceeding, Dr. Urban admitted that she had never looked at these CAT scans that proved that there was only one impact site, while she had gone ahead and said that there was evidence of multiple impacts. It's... it's. (sighs) I can't even find the right words for how angry that makes me. This alone should have been enough to reject Dr. Urban's position that a homicide had occurred. If we talk about why these things are so hard to unwind, even if all the science the jury was told was junk, is accepted as junk, but you still have a medical examiner saying, well, I think it's homicide anyway, the state is left saying, well, you know, I throw up my hands. But this medical examiner admitted that she did not consider any of this new evidence. She didn't even look at the CAT scans. She didn't listen to the testimony of all these new experts. She didn't seem to understand the interstitial viral pneumonia in the lung tissues that she'd collected. And instead just seemed to stand by this idea that the blood in the subdural space was enough for her to say, oh, well, whether it was shaking or not, it was still abuse. So she's still just making leaps in logic. Did she present any testimony, any logic at all to support this assertion? Well, I'll I'll give you one little anecdote. This is something I asked the medical examiner in court. You know, I said, let's say I walk outside the courtroom. There are these marble steps and no one else is around and I slip and I hit the back of my head and I become unconscious. And later you take a look at me. What is it that your background, your training has taught you that you could look at me and determine whether or not I'd fallen or someone had pushed me or someone had come up and hit me in the back of the head with a blunt object? Explain that to me. And of course she couldn't. Or shook you. Yeah. And and what is appalling about this is that the shaking hypothesis that she 
furthered at trial, along with the child abuse expert, she was telling the jury all about shaking, that that's why you look at the outside of this child, you don't see much, but the reason you know it's abuse is because shaking explains how all this stuff happens. Well, A, we now know shaking doesn't, but she couldn't tell me how blunt force trauma, even if it's not shaking, could be looked at after the fact and you could say whether it was inflicted or not because there's no science that would allow you to do that. That would require, you know, voodoo. Or a leap in logic to rule out anything else to the exclusion of all other possibilities that it was abuse. Yes, but they don't rule it out. They just jump to abuse. An unconscionable leap in logic. So what is the status of his case right now? Robert's case has been submitted as per Texas procedure to the Court of Criminal Appeals, which is the highest court for criminal matters in the state of Texas. So they will, one hopes, look at the huge volume of new evidence and look at it anew and really evaluate the allegations about the change in the scientific perspective from the time of his trial, which is the fundamental basis for our claims for relief. We also have an actual innocence claim, which is much stronger now than when we filed the claim because of the evidence of pneumonia, of the CAT scans that were finally produced, et cetera. But ultimately, you cannot read that trial transcript and compare that to contemporary understanding, even among people that believe Shaken baby syndrome has some validity. You cannot read the trial transcripts and fail to recognize it's full of falsehoods. And we hope the Court of Criminal Appeals will dig into that and then grant him a new trial. And then it's like go back to the trial court again and see if they really want to try again to convict him based on this horrifically scanty evidentiary record. Well, if they give you a chance and try to go ahead with what they presented in 2002, I think they'd realize pretty quickly that we just didn't know better back then and they'd let this go. Yeah. But listen, everyone that's listening now has the ability to do something. I know Robert said he wants people to write to him, which is, it sounds very simple and mundane, but I've heard from so many people that have been in similar situations that it means so much to them to get a letter from somebody on the outside who cares. But and so, but on a more proactive level, for people who do have the wherewithal and the time and the desire, what can they do? A wonderful supporter of Robert has created a website. So, you know, I'd love for people to look at Robert's website. There are court filings there, and certainly the latest filing that amasses all the new evidence and explains why a new trial is worthwhile will be up there. Well, we'll have that linked in the bio, as well as ways our audience can reach out to Robert. And with that, we move to closing arguments, where I thank you both for sharing your story. And then I'm going to turn my microphone off, leave my headphones on, and just listen for anything else that you feel is left to be said. Let's start off with you, Gretchen, and have Robert take us off into the sunset. I mean, I would like for the audience to picture themselves as a parent or any parent they know and put yourself in the shoes of Robert, but imagine yourself without resources, with an impairment that makes communication fundamentally difficult. And from the moment you arrive at the hospital with your comatose child, you're being interrogated, accused, and the accusations get worse and worse by the minute. So that by the end of a single day, you've gone from the worst time of your life your child who's relatively new to your life is gone 
and they won't even allow you to go to the hospital to say farewell because you're being taken to jail. And before you're, there's even an indictment, there's a statement from a hospital saying, it's got to be shaken baby syndrome, only explanation for this child's injuries, yet no one assesses the medical records, and no one has still assessed the medical history and tried to put all these pieces together. And it is a complicated puzzle, but every single piece points away from a crime and towards a tragic story of a young child who was sick from the moment she was born into unfortunate circumstances and then not given the fair shake that she deserved. It's not just about Robert. Nikki deserves a history that is based on the truth. Instead, her death itself is shrouded in a lie. And I urge people to just pay attention to what's being done in their names with our criminal justice systems. I came from a civil background and everything I learned every day adds to my shock and outrage. But there is real joy in fighting for people like Robert because the gratitude he expresses and the inspiration he provides with his resilience is remarkable. I'm so grateful for this podcast for shedding light on these kinds of cases. There are far too many of them. And of course, to me, Robert is unique in that he's uniquely vulnerable because of who he is and the, the system where we're left trying to get someone to hear us. <laughs> but I thank you for, for allowing us to be heard and especially allowing his voice to get out there. Okay. Okay. What I want to encourage both of y'all to continue to do what y'all doing and stuff because I believe in y'all and uh, uh, everybody else that's doing, doing fighting against this corrupt legal system with stuff, wrongful convictions. You know, keep doing, keep on, keep on doing what you're doing. You know, I'm gonna continue and continue to fight because you know, because you know, God knows and I know, you know, that that that, that, that was done wrong and stuff. And it's like. Uh, I'm very grateful for, for what y'all doing, very grateful for everybody that's involved in it. And uh, may y'all have a safe trip back home and stuff. May the Lord bless y'all and shine up his face upon y'all. And uh, uh, and just like to encourage both y'all to continue to do what you're doing. And I'm very happy and I'm very proud of both of you. And uh, uh, keep on, keep on, okay? Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis, with research by Lila Robinson. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One. Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people, it gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right. 